All right, we do have a one-verse scripture reading. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. My name is David Dean. Today I want to share with you just a bit of my story. My purpose is really not to make myself known to you, but rather to make the God whom I serve known to you. I'm a scientist by training and a follower of Jesus Christ by choice and by grace. And on the basis of the promises in this book, the Bible, I'm convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that when I die, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will accept my eternal soul into his presence. My confidence in God's promises that are recorded in this book is so strong that I've dedicated my life to teaching this book and proclaiming its message. But I did not always view the Bible favorably. For the first 26 years of my life, I considered this book to be nothing but a collection of myths and comforting fairy tales for weak-minded people. Now I consider it to be the most precious possession of mankind. The title of my message for today is Looking Back and Looking Forward. Most of my message will focus on the past, but I will have a few things to say at the end about my future and also about yours. I was born in the 1950s. I grew up in New Jersey. My father was a Gentile. He grew up in a Christian church. He graduated from a Christian college. He earned a Master's of Divinity degree from a Christian seminary. However, my father was not a Christian. My mother was Jewish, but she had rejected her Jewish heritage. Neither of my parents believed in the existence of God or in heaven or hell. Neither of them believed that the Bible was the word of God. Religiously, they were atheists. Politically and socially, socially, they were humanists. They believed that we humans are the descendants of apes, product of Darwinian evolution. A few years after they were married, they produced a girl, my older sister, Debbie, and then a couple of years later, I was born. But their marriage did not last. By the time that I was two years old, my mother was involved with another man named Joe, while she was still married to my father, she gave birth to Joe's son, my half-brother Joey. She then divorced my father and married Joe. They produced two more children, my sister Karen and my brother Stacy. That marriage soon failed as well. And by the time I was seven, my mother had become a single parent with five young children. We were very poor. We lived on welfare and food stamps. We got hand-me-down clothes from the Salvation Army. Within a few years, my older sister Debbie and I took on the responsibilities of watching the younger children because my mother was at work. We washed the clothes. We did the housework. We did the shopping and the cooking. We lived in a very rough part of town where muggings and robberies were common. It was a hard life. But fortunately, I liked school, and I was a good student. I especially liked science and math. School, for me, was a safe place. When I was eight years old, my father married a divorcee who also happened to be Jewish. She had a daughter from her first marriage, and from that point forward, my older sister Debbie and I would spend the weekends at my father's house and the weekdays at my mother's house where I went to school. Now, my father was far from wealthy, but at least in his house, we ate regularly and we felt safe. Now, like most young boys, I wanted to be like my father. After he graduated from seminary, my father turned his back on Christianity and became a Unitarian minister. He planted a church and he led that church for 30 years. 
Now, if you don't know what Unitarianism is, suffice it to say that in the Unitarian Church, any belief, no matter how strange, is accepted and tolerated except for one, and that is biblical Christianity. In his pulpit, my father taught that there is no God, no sin, and no life after death. In his preaching, he promoted feminism, environmentalism, and nuclear disarmament. He preached against what he called the confining uh, morality of the Bible and instead promoted free love and free sex. Above all, my father sought to tear down any belief in the God of the Bible. And since he was an atheist, I became an atheist too. I took special delight in debating with the other kids in school. And I would say things like this, you believe in God? Where is he? Can you see him? Can you hear him? Can you feel him? Does he have weight or size? Nothing that you can't measure is real. And would this God that you imagine, this good God that you imagine, create a messed up world like the one that we live in? No. Face the facts. There is no God. Now, I was good at making those kids look foolish, but that didn't mean that I was right. In my mother's neighborhood, there were many Roman Catholics, and even though we tried to hide the fact that we were Jewish, somehow they found out. My atheistic attacks on my classmates who believed in God didn't make me popular, and being Jewish made it worse. On more than one occasion, a gang of Catholic boys would surround me on the way home from school. And they'd say, you dirty, stinking Jew boy. They'd knock my books out of my hands. They'd push me to the ground. And then they'd say, if you Jews hadn't killed Jesus, he'd still be here. Those incidents only increased my distaste for Christianity. Now, life was especially tough in my mother's home, but things weren't great in my father's home either. My father and my stepmother sometimes fought. My mother often brought strange men home who stayed the night, and most of them were pretty scary. Mom would be giddy with happiness when she had a man to be with and depressed and suicidal when no man would come. And as I watched the failed marriages and relationships of my parents and my step-parents, I became bitter and cynical. I was tired of being hurt. I made up my mind that I would love no one, never marry, and certainly never bring children into this rotten world. And so I retreated into a world of books and hobbies I loved building things and repairing things. I dabbled in electronics. I built model airplanes. I learned carpentry. I built furniture. I even built a working steam engine in my shop class in high school. I enjoyed camping. I loved canoeing with the Boy Scouts. Well, one day when I was 16, I had a terrible scare. My stepmother and I had joined a Saturday event on the Delaware River to learn whitewater canoeing. Now, my stepmother and I were already experienced flatwater canoeists, but whitewater canoeing is different. So we learned the strokes, and several times we shot the rapids, and we did just fine. We learned quickly. Well, one man had come to that event without a partner. And so he came to my stepmother and asked her if she would shoot the rapids with him. She said, sure. Now, as they pushed their canoe away from the shore, I had a nervous feeling in my stomach. The man was a total klutz. Shortly after they entered the rapids, he managed to capsize the canoe. And the last thing that I saw was their upturned canoe disappearing around a bend in the river, and there were no heads in sight. I was terrified. 
And I found myself, I, the self-proclaimed atheist, crying out in my mind, please, God, don't let them be dead. Well, two hours later, they showed up. They'd been swept far downriver, but they were fine. Whether or not their survival was an answer to my prayer, I do not know. But that event confirms the fact that no one is really an atheist. We all know in our hearts that there is a God. Now, years earlier, during my middle school years, my mother had begun a relationship with a man called Bob. Now, Bob had no real affection for my mother. He was just using her. But my mother pursued him shamelessly. By my junior year of high school, my older sister, Debbie, had gone off to college. Bob still showed up at our house from time to time. And in those days, my mother and I often fought. I didn't like the way that she was raising my three younger siblings. One day during my junior year of high school, we had a big fight and I turned my back and I was leaving the room and my mother tried to stab me in the back with a kitchen knife. I only narrowly escaped. I called my sister Debbie at college to tell her what had happened. Eventually, she revealed that my mother and Bob had been abusing her for a number of years. It was kept secret under my mother's threat that she would kill herself if my sister told. And then we discovered that they were beginning to do the same thing with my younger sister, Karen. And so in October of 1973, my senior year of high school, my mother's second husband took my mother to court to gain custody of those three young children who were his children. Debbie and I were brought in as witnesses to testify against our mother. And after just one day of testimony, it became clear that the court was going to take the little kids away from her. Now, my sister and I begged the judge not to let our mother go home that night, but the judge would not listen. The next day, mom didn't show up in court. She and the three younger children simply disappeared. We went to their house. Everything was still there, but they were gone. Now, my mother had told my sister and I many times in the past that if anyone tried to take those children away from her, she would kill them and then herself. Overnight, our family was torn apart. And for the next 12 years, my sister and I lived with the fear that they might all be dead. Well, a year after their disappearance, I graduated from high school. I attended Drew University, where I majored in physics and minored in philosophy. I joined the fencing team, and by my senior year, I was team captain and elected most valuable player. I did well in my studies. I had a part-time job at the prestigious Bell Laboratories that some of you might have heard about if you're older. In many ways, I was on the road to a successful career and a comfortable life. But despite those successes, I was troubled. I was deeply hurt by the loss of my younger siblings. And time passed, and I wondered, had my mother carried out her deadly plan, or were they alive somewhere? In those college years, I began to ask myself questions, big questions. Who am I? What is life for? What happens after death? Where did this universe come from? Is there any justice? The world was in turmoil in those days, just as it is now. I could see that in this world, suffering is a certainty. War, sickness, poverty, and heartbreak were everywhere. Yet I longed for hope. I longed for a reason to believe that life did not have to be bad. And so I began to wonder if perhaps the solution lay 
in education and technology and in material progress and a better standard of living. In my studies of physics, I learned of the great advances of science. Technology had improved the quality of physical life in many ways, but that couldn't be the answer. Science and technology could be used by men for good or for evil. Nuclear physics provided a way to light cities, but it also provided a way to build bombs. Biochemistry had provided cures for many diseases, but it had also opened the door for biochemical weapons. Science could offer power to men, but it could not change their hearts. I wondered where man came from. What was the origin of life? The theory of evolution seemed to offer an explanation. Darwin had claimed that random mutations plus natural selection had worked together to involve complex organisms from simple ones. But the more I pondered that theory, the more problems began to appear. First, evolution might offer an explanation for the complexity of life, but it had no explanation for the origin of the first living creatures. Second, the idea that increasing order could arise by accident contradicted what I was studying in physics, the laws of thermodynamics. Random processes can only increase disorder. Everything runs down. Nothing runs up. Third, evolution explained nothing about the origin of the universe itself. And finally, there was that most nagging question of all for a person who tried to tell himself that the only realities are physical. Where does human consciousness come from? Evolution and physical science offered no answers to these questions. And I began to realize that I could not, with integrity, continue to be an atheist. I could no longer rule out the possibility that God was the answer to my questions, and so I went quietly from being an atheist. An atheist is a person who insists that there is no God to being an agnostic. That's a person who believes that God might exist, but otherwise has no opinion. I started to realize that there's more to existence than just what is physical. And so I decided to explore the world of the mind and the spirit. I tried transcendental meditation. But instead of the peace of mind and the mental focus that they promised, it made me anxious. It gave me bad dreams. I took a special course called Seminar on Consciousness. Every day for a month, we gathered to read the writings of Eastern religions. We fasted, we chanted, we meditated, we did yoga, we practiced self-hypnosis. We summoned spirit guides and conversed with them in our minds. But when that course ended, I still had not found what I was looking for. I finished college and went to work full-time at Bell Laboratories. And I made good money and I enjoyed my work. After a year, my department head called me in and said, Dave, you have the potential to be a research scientist. It's time for you to get a PhD. So a year later, I began doctoral studies in physics at Cornell University. But before I left for Cornell, I met a very special girl. She is now my wife. She's sitting right there. Her name is Mi Young. Mi Young was born and raised in Korea. She moved to America when she was 14. She started her freshman year at Drew University, where I had gone, a few months after I graduated. We met when I was coaching the women's fencing team, for which she came out. And by the time I left for Cornell a couple years later, we were dating. But then something awful happened. She went to a summer evangelistic camp, and she became a Christian. Now, you can imagine how angry I was. Not only had she fallen for what I considered to be a stupid superstition, but after a time of 
attending church and studying the Bible, she told me that the Bible said it was wrong for her to date a non-Christian. For the next few years, our relationship was stormy. We were strongly attracted to each other, but her Christianity and my lack of Christianity always got in the way. And so, at the beginning of my third year at Cornell, I decided it was time to solve our problems once for all. I would read the Bible, find its errors, show them to her. She would give up her Christianity, and we could continue our relationship unhindered. So I called my father, the Unitarian minister, and I said, Dad, can you send me some books that explain what's wrong with the Bible and Christianity? And he said, sure, I'll put them in the mail for you today. Soon I had those books in my hands, and I also had a Bible. And every night during the fall semester that year at Cornell, I spent a couple of hours in study. During the first hour, I read my father's books. And during the second hour, I read the Bible. Well, what I discovered surprised me greatly. First, I discovered that the books that my father had sent me were unconvincing. They were illogical, unscientific, and based more on prejudice than on sound reason. Second, I discovered that whoever wrote this book had incredible insight into human nature. The Bible talked about the wickedness of the human heart. It talked about selfishness, about the fact that people are helpless to change themselves. I knew these things from my own experience. I had seen them in others, and I had seen them in myself. But the Bible offered a word that was new to me to explain these things. It called them sin. Now, at this point, I had not yet come to believe in God. But I understood now that like everyone else in the world, I was a sinner. And so I wrote to me young to tell her what I had found. By the way, during those months, we did not see each other. She wasn't satisfied. She wrote back to me, sent me a whole box full of chick publication tracks. <laughs> and it had a note in it that just said, read these. Well, that was the last straw. No woman was worth that much trouble to me. So I wrote her a very short note, put it in the box, and mailed it back to her, and it basically said, you and I are through. Now, I don't remember much about the spring semester that followed. I continued my studies. I went out dancing in the bars. I dated other girls, but I didn't find anyone I really cared for. I continued my studies, but my heart wasn't really in it, and I still hadn't found any answers to my questions about life. Well, in April of 1983, I went home to New Jersey to visit my family during spring break. Myung had left a phone message for me with them, inviting me to join her for Christian Day at Six Flags. And so I agreed. Uh, we went, and that day at Six Flags, several people spoke to me about Jesus, but I, I just didn't know what to think. Well, that evening, there was an outdoor Christian concert. There was no seating. There were just a bunch of Christian rock groups up on a makeshift stage. We who were listening stood in the grass and listened. And between songs, some of the performers told how Jesus had changed their lives Others explained this thing that they called the gospel. Well, there was a lady moving around in the crowd. I had never seen her before. She came up to me young and a bunch of other young people and me, and she pulled us into a huddle. And she prayed for God to move that night, asked him that he would free young people from the power of the devil and give them new lives in Jesus Christ. And when she was done, she opened her eyes and she looked me right in the eye, and she said, you're not a Christian, are you? Well, I was too scared to answer. She said, 
I was a drug addict, I was a prostitute, I was an alcoholic, I was a thief, and Jesus delivered me from all those, and he can deliver you from whatever your problem is. Now pray after me. <laughs> she scared me so much, I was afraid to say no. <laughs> she led me through a prayer in which I asked God to forgive my sins, to make me his child, and to change my life. She then said, welcome to the family of God, gave me a hug, and disappeared. <laughs> now, I stood there in the dark, listening to the music, not sure whether anything had really happened. And as I thought, I tried to pray. In my mind, I said, God, I, I know I'm a sinner. If you are real, I know I'm in big trouble with you. If you're real... If Jesus really did die for my sins, help me to know that it's true. Well, the concert ended around 9 p.m. I drove me young back to her home, and then I made the long six-hour drive back to Cornell. It was about 4.30 in the morning when I arrived and finally got to bed. Once again, I called out in my mind, to God, and I said, if you are real, you have to let me know. The date was April 30th, 1983. When I woke up a few hours later, my doubts were gone. I wasn't sure how, but now I knew that the gospel was true and that God had forgiven me and saved me. I joined a church, I began to study the Bible, a Mennonite couple in that church took me under their wing. They had two young girls, and they showed me what a healthy Christian family was like. Myung and I were engaged about a year after I got saved, and we were married in May 1985. Two years later, we moved here to Dallas, where I earned a THM degree at Dallas Theological Seminary. During our seminary years, our two sons, Caleb and Andrew, were born. As a family, we served as missionaries in the Philippines from 1994 to 2002. We came back here to get a PhD, and then in 2009, Myung and I abandoned our sons here and went to Hong Kong, where I teach in a Chinese seminary, and we've been there ever since. And by the way, we're very grateful to this church for taking care of our sons while we've been away. Today, both of our sons are married to fine Christian women. And Andrew and Juliana, whom many of you know, have given us two beautiful granddaughters. Lord willing, Young and I will return to Hong Kong three days from now. Well, that's a bit of my story. There's much more to it. I've led you through the sequence of events that led me to place my trust in Christ. I want to conclude my message by doing three things. First, I want to look back and analyze the stages of my spiritual journey. Second, I want to reflect briefly on how God has worked in my life since I received his gift of eternal forgiveness and eternal life. And finally, I want to offer a challenge to each of you as we look forward to an uncertain future. Let me start by analyzing the stages of my spiritual journey. I see seven clear stages. Now, for lack of a better term, I'll label the first term of my spiritual journey as a childhood of pain. My earliest memories are almost all memories of conflict and pain verbal arguments between my true parents, physical violence by my stepfather against my mother, and the hardships of living in poverty and shame and insecurity. My childhood taught me to be tough and self-reliant, but it also made me cynical and bitter. The second stage of my spiritual journey involved the choice, the choice of atheism. The fact that my father was an atheist certainly pushed me in that direction, but it wasn't the only factor. My painful experiences made it hard for me to accept the idea 
that there is a God and that that God is good. And yet on that day when I feared that my stepmother was drowning, I found myself calling out to that God whom I refused to acknowledge. Like every other person who calls himself an atheist, I was lying to myself. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has, quote, put eternity in our hearts. God has programmed into our minds the reality of life after death and the truth of his existence. Yet we're powerless by ourselves to find the answers to the questions that arise when we finally find the courage to face those realities. The third stage in my spiritual journey took place during my studies of physics and philosophy in my college years. Those years of study forced me to acknowledge the fact that we live in an amazingly complex and beautiful universe that could not possibly be the result of random chance. Now, I call this stage encountering the evidence of creation. I want you to listen to some words from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, namely his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Let me repeat just a portion of that text. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. As a scientist, I could not deny the evidence of the world in which I live, the beauty of the laws of physics, the perfectly tailored conditions that make life possible on this planet and, as far as we know, nowhere else in the entire universe. The astonishing complexity of living creatures and their ability to reproduce. These facts propelled me from the comfortable but bitter smugness of atheism into the disquieting condition of agnosticism. Now, Psalm 14.1 describes me perfectly in those days of my atheism. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. When I was an atheist, I was a fool. But when the evidence of creation forced me to jettison that shield of atheism that I had put up around myself, I found myself facing the fourth stage of my journey. The fourth stage was facing the inevitability of death. Now, I had a preview of this stage on that day when I thought my stepmother was drowning, but the inevitability of death really began to hit me hard when my mother and my three younger siblings disappeared. My mother's vow that she would end their lives and her own echoed in my mind for years. Frankly, I didn't have much love for my mother. She was a horrible woman. But I dearly loved those kids. And as I pondered the ugly possibility that their lives might already have ended, I couldn't avoid thinking about the fact that my life would end one day too. It was in that context that I began to explore things like transcendental meditation and Eastern religions. But nothing that I found there offered any convincing answers to the inevitability of death. Now listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood... He himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy or better yet render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now that passage is rich in profound truths. First, 
It declares that the second person of the Trinity, whom we call Jesus, added to himself a human nature in order to save us. In other words, Jesus became a man. Second, and this is where I want to focus our attention, it describes his saving work in terms of disarming the devil by stealing from him his most powerful weapon. That weapon is the fear of death. Allow me to explain. Stop for a moment to consider this question. What is it that every single religion has in common? The answer to that question is that every religion offers a way to escape from the fear of death. Let's consider some examples. Christian science says that death is an illusion. Hinduism says that death is just a transition from one form of mortal life to another form of mortal life through reincarnation. The three major religions of Christianity and Islam and Judaism teach that humans will face God's judgment after death, and each of them offers its followers a way to prepare for that judgment in the hope that they will receive God's approval rather than his condemnation. But let's not leave out Darwinism and its close relative secular humanism. They are religions too. They teach that we humans are simply accidental biological machines and therefore when we die, we will cease to exist. This belief too is a way to escape from the fear of death. Well, the question arises, how can we know which of these religions is true? And the answer is the resurrection of Jesus. He's the only person in history who has willingly gone through death and come out on the other side. And he came out victorious. The resurrection proves the truth of the message which is recorded in the Bible. Now, in this fourth stage of my spiritual journey, God forced me to face the inevitability of death, and he was preparing me for the next crucial stage. The fifth stage was encountering the truth of Scripture. I set out to prove that the Bible is wrong, but I ended up discovering that this book is a fountain of truth that can be found nowhere else. Expecting to discover a book of myths and lies, I was strangely drawn to what I found. I read the Gospels, I read the book of Romans, I read Genesis, and it was not at this stage that I came to saving faith, but I did come to realize that what the Bible says about people, now, let me make that more personal, what it says about me is true. I had to face the painful truth. I was a sinner. I was guilty of lying, of stealing, of coveting, of lusting, and of selfishness. And if there was a God, that meant that I was in trouble. The sixth stage of my spiritual journey was the challenge of the gospel. Now, I've already told you about that night at Six Flags when a stranger challenged me to put my trust in Christ. Someday I'm going to meet her in heaven, and I'm going to thank her. But she was not the first. I think I probably heard the gospel the first time when I was about eight years old when my mother sent me off to vacation Bible school because she didn't know what else to do with me. Now, I survived exactly two days there because I got into arguments with my teachers, and they decided it was better for me not to be around. Now, the gospel that they were proclaiming is summed up in John 3.16, which most of you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel has two parts. The bad news of the gospel is that without God's forgiveness, every one of us is destined to perish, to experience God's eternal judgment in hell and the lake of fire. The good news is that God has provided a way to receive his forgiveness through the cross of Christ. Now, John 3.36 states these two diametrically opposite options even more plainly. It says, he who believes in the Son 
has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Every one of us is facing one of two options. And the default option is condemnation. I heard the gospel from classmates at Cornell. And let me not forget the many times when Mi Young shared the gospel with me. Every one of those people at those various stages of my life who made an effort to share the gospel with me have treasure in heaven today because of what they did. The seventh and final stage of my spiritual journey that led me to new life in Christ was the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm talking about that mysterious working of the second person of the Trinity that took place between the moment when I put my head down on my pillow at 4.30 a.m. on April 30th, 1983, and when I woke up several hours later. What is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit? It's what he does when he enables a person to face and then accept the truth of the gospel in a personal way. Now, when I put my head on the pillow that morning, I already had all of the evidence that I needed. The problem was not that I didn't have the evidence. Eternity was written in my heart. I knew that death would surely come my way one day. I had read much of the Bible, and I'd heard the gospel message. I understood instinctively and logically that no good thing that I could do could ever erase my guilt for the bad things that I had already done. But my mind and my heart were still in rebellion. It took the invisible, convicting work of the Holy Spirit to enable me to respond to the gospel. Now, when I awoke that morning, the truth had penetrated my heart and my mind. I understood that I was helpless to please God, but I also understood that God had provided a sacrifice to pay for my sins in the cross of Christ. And at that moment, the fear of death left me. I know now that when this mortal body, which is slowly falling apart, fails, God will accept my immortal soul and spirit into his presence. I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. I am freed from the fear of death. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name. Through faith in Christ, I am now a child of God. Well, let me say just a few words about God's work in my life since the day that I was saved. I've told you a little bit about it. But this is perhaps the most important thing. Shortly after I was saved, I made a vow to myself and to God. And this is the way the vow went. With God's help, if God ever gives me a family, I will not do to them what my parents did to us. Now, coming from my family background, humanly speaking, there was little hope of success. Have you ever noticed that people tend to pass on the sins that were committed upon them? But God has the power to change a person and to change the trajectory of his life. And that's exactly what he did with me. God has given me a wonderful wife two fine sons, two godly daughters-in-law, and two beautiful grandchildren. And by his grace, our marriage is strong and joyful after 38 years. God gave me the spiritual gift of teaching, and I love my work of teaching and preaching. I love to see God's Word and God's power doing for others what it has done for me. 
Jesus summed up his purpose in saving men in John 10.10 when he spoke these words. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. 1 Timothy 1.15 that I read to you earlier expresses the truth that drives my ministry. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 describes my calling. And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will teach others also. That's all we are. We are just links in a chain. We're just links in a chain. And God passes on blessing from generation to generation to generation. Now, by the way, let me not leave you totally hanging. I'm happy to say that my my mother did not carry out her threat. Twelve years after three, she and the children disappeared, we did find them alive. Their lives were a mess. Um, Some of you may have been here in 2012 when my brother Joe told his story. He was gloriously saved from a life of crime and drug addiction, and he is now the pastor of a church that he planted. And I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord. Well, I'm coming to the end of my message. Most of this message has looked backwards, but what do we see as we look forward to the future? 2023 is not shaping up as a good year, is it? We have war in Europe. We have the threat of war in Asia. There are rumors of a new COVID scare circulating. The world economy is unstable. The pace of natural disasters seems to be escalating. And our nation seems to be spiraling into fragmentation and political turmoil. The picture is not pretty. Well, let me share with you my attitude as I look toward the future. Before I was saved, I was a pessimist. My life motto is this, life sucks and then you die. (laughs) Now, the opposite of a pessimist is an optimist. But when I was saved, I didn't become an optimist. I became what I call a biblical realist. Now, the Bible tells us that terrible days are ahead. A period of time called the tribulation is coming when an evil ruler whom we typically call the Antichrist will attempt to enslave the world. According to scripture, the amount of human suffering that will transpire during that period of time will be unprecedented in all of human history. Thankfully, scripture also promises that the days of Antichrist will end when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to our planet. It would be easy to be pessimistic about the future, but I'm not a pessimist. I'm a biblical realist. Now, what is a biblical realist? Well, a pessimist thinks that life is going to get worse and worse and worse. An optimist thinks it's going to get better and better and better. A biblical realist is a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. (laughs) Right? A biblical realist believes that for those who have trusted Christ, things may get worse before they get better. But when Christ returns... He will set things right for those who have received the gift of eternal life. And in all eternity that will be ahead of us, sorrow and sadness will be gone forever. And so my closing challenge to you who are already Christians is this. Don't feel discouraged as we see the world going down the drain. It must happen. But we can be comforted by the knowledge that God's plan will surely prevail. And we can serve Christ in tough times as well as in good times. God has his purposes even in days of evil. And in those days, the gospel will shine with special brightness. Well, my final challenge is to those of you who are here who may not be Christians. You and I are alike. You, like me, are a sinner. You, like me, are guilty before your creator. 
the one true God of the Bible. And you, like me, deserve only judgment at his hands. Like me, there is nothing that you can do in your own power to earn his forgiveness or to escape his judgment. Today, God is offering you his forgiveness, but you can only receive it on his terms. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Face the fact that you are a sinner. Give up all hope of earning God's approval by your own efforts. Trust in Christ alone. Don't put it off. He may be calling you right now. In John 6.40, Jesus offers this promise. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. If you are still marching toward death without God's forgiveness, that promise is for you. Are you listening? All right, let's pray. Father, quite frankly, I often feel embarrassed telling my story. In my story, I focused most on the sins of others and not on my own, but I have plenty of my own. But I tell this story because it shows the fact that no person is beyond the reach of your mercy. No matter how wicked he has been, no matter how much he has blasphemed your name, no matter how much he has spit in your face. I have done all those things, and yet you had mercy on me. And I will spend eternity thanking you for it. Most of us in this room have had the same experience. But Father, if there is just even one person in this room who has not received your gift of eternal life, if there's one person in this room who is foolish enough to think that he or she can earn your forgiveness or foolish enough to think that there is no God, I ask for that person that you would give him or her no peace of heart, no ability to sleep until he or she comes to you and surrenders to the truth and receives your gift of eternal life. Father, you've laid out the evidence in your word You've shown us the evidence in the world. You've proved the truth of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Grant that today may be the salvation for someone in this room. And we will thank you through Jesus Christ. Amen.